What up? This is Dart Adams, and this is Dart Against Humanity, episode 24. So recently what I did was, I mentioned it last episode, I wrote an article that ended up on Medium. Uh, Independent as fuck to 25 essential underground hip-hop releases from 1998. Uh, the reason why I did this article is because it was a sequel to uh, Independent as fuck 20 essential underground hip-hop releases from 1997. The reason I did it is because for years I've been trying to explain to people that they are actually wrong with their premise that there was one continuous gender, um, golden era from 1986 to 1987. I broke them up into two separate uh, golden eras, and there was a transition period, 1990 to 1991. Uh, I also explained to people, and I've do- done this for years, whether it be through lecturing and doing podcasts or speaking engagements or what have you, just whatever you can imagine. Um, I've explained that people are under the impression that classic albums are super rare and they're not super rare. It's just our their perception or how far they are from the actual realm of rap or rap journalism, or just how far they are from how much rap they actually listen to, the immersion level. They don't know what's out there, so they they under the, they are under the impression that there aren't a lot of uh, classic albums. Also because a lot of them only listen to uh, mainstream rap. So I explained to these people that classic albums come out every year. If you're not aware of them, that's on you. If you missed the, out on them, that's on you. And also, I explained to people that in different eras, the consist the consensus rap classic album doesn't really exist like it used to anymore, due to the fact that there's been a splintering between the underground and mainstream starting in 1997. From 1997 on, there've been two divergent paths for the the rap um industry. There've been two separate rap industries. I say I've called it a uh, rap apartheid, you know. Where you have, or like rap, or like hip hop Jim Crow, or hip hop apartheid and rap Jim Crow, and where there are two separate and unequal rap industries coexisting, and oftentimes never the twain shall meet. Whereas before then, the underground was pretty much a farm or feeder system to the mainstream industry. I'm talking about the times where you could go to Stretch and Bob show and people who worked at labels such as like a Dante Ross, you know, a Patrick Moxie, people of that nature, Dave Funkin' Klein, who worked at Hollywood Basic. Um, you know, back in the days when like a Brian Chin, who worked with uh, in, the, in the late 80s, who worked with uh, either Profile or later, he worked with PLW Polygram. Brian Chin, I think he signed uh, Rob Bass and Easy Rock. And he also, I believe he signed um, Ed O.G. and the Bulldogs to PWL. Um, I don't know if he signed um, Diamond D or not. But there are instances where there were people that worked at major labels who would go to radio shows, rap radio shows, underground radio shows, mix shows, college stations, and they would recruit from the available talent that was on the underground. 
Like, yo, these cats rap so well. Their lyricism is crazy. The way they flip samples is crazy. Do you hear this? Do you hear that? They're talented. You know, we need to sign them. Like, people would listen to these radio shows and say, oh, this is the new hot shit. And also, uh, at the time, hip-hop publications like The Source or um, Rap Pages would really dictate who the next people were. Like, they had a say. And a lot of times, they looked towards the underground. Who was putting out independent shit? Like, we all love Nice and Smooth. Nice and Smooth actually put out independent an independent single. I think it was called Dope on the Rope and Skill Trade. You know, on, I think it was Strange Family Records or whatever. Before they got signed by Fresh Sleeping Bag. Before Fresh Sleeping Bag was pretty much, they, uh, Def Jam came and bought all their top talent, damn near. So... I'm explaining to you that there used to be a time where the underground served as a farm system or a feeder system for the mainstream or major label rap industry. Starting around 1997, that started to change where the MCs or the groups who made that shit that was hot between 92 and 96 started getting dropped and swapped out in exchange for people that actually, you know, sold records, which makes sense because it's it's an industry, it's about money at the end of the day. And if you didn't know, a lot of the albums that we consider classics are consensus classics. A lot of us don't realize this because they, they there was no real immersion inside the industry. So they didn't know that these albums didn't sell. So many of these albums that we consider classics that we talk about today did not move a significant amount of units. Which is why a lot of these people ended up getting dropped. You put out six albums on the label, nothing's ever gone gold. It's no big deal to say, eh, we'll cut our losses with them. And then sign somebody who sold 350,000 units in six states without national distribution, without a video being played on MTV or BET. And then you give them that support and they go platinum. That's a better return on investment, don't you think? So that's why this happened. So I did Independent as Fuck 2 to highlight, well, to continue to highlight the era I consider 1997 to 2002, which is what I consider like the underground backpack era, which is a divergent era, which should have led to a third golden era. The reason why there hasn't been another golden era is because once you split up these um, entities, they no longer had to intersect or interact with each other or have direct competition with each with each other it was the direct competition back in the days which actually fed the golden eras the influence people pushing each other the direct competition uh so without that it was a wrap you just had two separate Entities and two separate eras. So the Jiggy era happened over there. Whereas the backpack underground independent era that I'm talking about happened over here. In a perfect world, 1997 and 1998 should have been transition years just like 1990 and 1991 were. And beginning in 99, we should have had a third golden era. That makes sense, doesn't it? I'll explain it further. 1986 to 1989 is the first golden era. 90 
to 91 is a transition era. 92 to 96 is a golden era. 97 should have been should have been the beginning of a transition era. 1984 and 85 were a transition era into the first golden era. If you look at 84 and 85, 84 is the year we have the first like rap albums really come out with uh, Run DMC, Houdini. You know, we have album come out from um, like Fat Boys, Curtis Blow. We come into 85, you know, we're having like the big rap album that really kicked off everything, in my opinion, because it bled from 85 all the way into 86. Post the Run DMC, uh, Fat Boys, Houdini, Curtis Blow era is LL Cool J's radio. Because LL Cool J's radio first came up on the like the black music charts and then crossed over and then it blew up all through 86 before we get Run DMC Raising Hell, before we get uh, Beastie Boys licensed to L. And like that's when we're in the first golden era. But anyway, trust me, if I say something, it's not me talking out my ass. I've thoroughly researched this. I figured it out. I can, I can explain it to you. So again, independent as fuck Two twenty five 25 essential underground hip hop releases from 1998 is the second part of me explaining further 97 and 98 and their involvement in that era that wasn't a golden era. It, it has joints like, you probably never heard of these if you're not really ahead. Tags of the Times, Volume 1, All Natural, No Additives, No Preservatives, The Dino Spectrum, Third Eye Vision from Hyro, The Next Step, People Under the Stairs, A Book of Human Language, AC Alone and Mumbles, Mr. Dibbs, Turntable Scientifics, Lyricist Lounge, Volume 1, Independence Day, Hip Hop Independence Day, Volume 1, Unnervous, Beneath the Surface by Beneath the Surface slash Celestial, in 99, it got like distribution. Showbiz and AG's full scale EP. The color section bomb EP, bomb MC. Uh, J Rock's uh, Walkman rotation uh, mixtape for Conception Records out of Seattle. Um, Rasco Time Waste for No Man on Stone's Throw. Wu Tang Killer Bees The Swarm. Mixmaster Mike's Anti Theft Device on Asphodel. DJ Faust Man of Myth on Bomb Hip Hop. Styles of Beyond 2000 Fold on Bylon. Beats and Lyrics 2, the industry compilation. Deeper Concentration, which was on Alm. Most Def and Talib Quilly, Our Black Star, which came out September 29th, 1998, 20 years ago today. Uh, Elroneous, The First Fire, Imaginarium, classic album. Stretched Armstrong, The Lesson 2, uh, Rhett, DJ Rhett Matic, World Famous Beat Junkies Volume 2, DJ Qbert, Wave Twisters, uh, and DJ Morpheus, Facts and Fiction, and New Hip Hop Underground, which is another compilation a lot of people really slept on. There were a lot of other albums from 98, but I just didn't make them in a, um, have them on the list. And then for another thing, it was really hard to find release dates. I actually would have released that sooner had it been easier for me to find release dates. I pretty much had to exhume dead bodies to find release dates for those um, albums. So, again, that's why a lot of people don't do this type of um, rap writing because it's too labor intensive and there's too many man hours involved. And I wrote that shit for free, but I wrote it for free because I wrote four other pieces that I'm getting paid for. You're welcome. Now, um, the piece that's running now, as big as um, on OK Player, September 29th, 1998 was Rap Music's last great release date. That's 20 years ago today. So, on that date, Jay-Z's Volume 2 Hard Knock Life, uh, A Tribe Called Quest, The Love Movement, Outkast, Equimini, Most Def and Taleb, Quilly, Our Black Star, and Brand Nubian's Foundation 
were all released the same day. And I actually worked the Tower Records uh, right down the street from where I lived on um, at the corner of Mass Ave and Newberry. And I actually did that midnight sale. So I had a firsthand account of what happened. And my experience as both a fan and as somebody who was working there and someone who was like, is experienced the culture and has been immersed in it since 1979 and how long we'd come and also how it was the last legitimate great rap release date so i did that piece um it went up yesterday because again we had this conversation they don't like running articles on saturdays which i don't understand it's a free day but they think that you're not going to get as many people as many eyes so i didn't really fight it so they ran it uh, yesterday afternoon, the day a day early, and right now they're looking at over two thousand Facebook likes, uh, approaching a thousand shares on Twitter's three hundred plus RTs, over six hundred likes, and like the numbers are ridiculous for it. And as much as I don't really care about numbers, I actually have to because what happens is that determines whether or not I get another crack at something else. The last two pieces I did did well, very well numbers wise. And that also affects my rate going forward. That also affects uh, how enthusiastic OK Player is with having me write more stuff. So there's a cause and effect there. So as much as I don't really care about numbers and I just want to do the work and write the best article. These things matter. It's business at the end of the day. And I know people hate hearing that, and I know I hate saying it, but it is business. There has to be a return on investment. So um, one of the things that bothers me about the fact that there has to, it's a business and there has to be a return on investment, and we have to drive ad revenue because we have to get eyes and clicks and viewers, is um, also due to the fact that it's so labor-intensive, and it takes so much work to do a thoroughly researched article versus how much you get paid and versus when you finally do get paid for it. That it's not worth it for somebody to put in those necessary man hours or do that necessary labor to write something that's not ahistorical or doesn't have big ass holes in it. So that leads to faulty rap research. And one of the biggest issues we have right now is that so August 8th, 1998, everybody was going around acknowledging it as the <laughs> the 30th anniversary of straight out of Compton. I didn't. And the reason I didn't is because it's not the 30th anniversary straight out of Compton. Straight out of Compton was not released in August 1998. If it was released in August 1998, then how come it doesn't show up on the charts for another six months? And all you have to do is look at any chart, any black music chart, and you look at Busy B. You see Busy B's album into the charts. You see Raheem the Vigilante into the charts. You see Finesse and Sinquist into the charts. You see the Real Rock Sands album into the charts. And you see them steadily ascend. You see uh, uh, Super Lover C and Casanova Rudd's album enter the charts and climb up. And you start thinking to yourself. You see Derek B's uh, Bullet from a Gun, uh, Hitting Like a Bullet from a Gun, or what is it called? 
enter or climb the charts. Then you see, uh, you start wondering to yourself, wait a minute, how come starting in the summer, NWA and the Posse album enters the charts and climbs up of it, up it. Then later on, you see Easy Does It, Easy E's album climb up the charts. But during the whole time all these albums are climbing up the charts, you never see NWA straight out of Compton ever. From winter, from summer into fall into winter, you never see it. You see NWA's first album climb up the charts, and here's why. I believe that uh, on purpose. We've talked about this, me and John, um, John Book have talked about this. I believe that what happened was Ruthless had licensed albums out to other artists that were making them more money, such as um, Supersonic by J.J. Fad and stuff like that. So they were making more money off these albums. So what ends up happening is um, when they re-released Straight Outta, uh, not in Straight Outta Compton, but N.W.A. and the Posse, they released that album on August 8th, 1988, or re-released it, and then it climbed the charts. So it's been erroneously reported again and again that that's the release date for Straight Outta Compton. It, it's not the release date for Straight Outta Compton. It couldn't have been, because if you look at the catalog numbers very clearly, Easy Ease, Easy Does It has an earlier catalog number than Straight Outta Compton. If Straight Outta Compton was released two, three months before Easy E's album, then why would it have a catalog date that doesn't make sense? It would have a catalog date before it, not after, not too after. So what has what likely happened is they re-released uh, NWA and the Posse under new distribution on August 8th. Then they released Easy Ease Easy Does It around November. And then at the top of 1989, they released straight out of Compton. But because nobody dis had, did this possible the, the, the necessary amount of research, which is really easy to do, by mind you, you go to Discogs, you go to the charts, you, you look at a few things. This research actually would have taken 30 minutes for anybody who knew what the fuck they were doing. 30 minutes. I promise you, looking at catalog numbers on Discogs, or better yet, if you lived that time, so you have the album and you could just look at it yourself, it's right there on the spine, um, or right there on the record label if you actually care about vinyl. Really quick, so you would figure that out. Also, um, artists don't know when the albums come out. I've mentioned this before, so everybody was talking about how. Uh, Red Man's album dropped September 22nd, 1992. It didn't. It dropped on October 9th. If you go and check the charts, you'll see that it enters on uh, October 24th, 1992, as opposed to earlier, which I mentioned before. Also, if you go back and look at the source, it was reviewed in the November 1992 source as opposed to the October 1992 source. Because it was released in October, which would have been the November source. Eh, easy shit that you can research, simple shit that you can research, not really hard, not really labor intensive. 
these things have been digitized and they're online. Or you could just go to a library and find them. Or you could go to anybody who's worth their salt in rap, music, research, anything like that. Which, if you're actually writing in the space, you should know these people. Or you should have these type of people at your disposal. It just makes sense. I don't know. Maybe I'm crazy. Journalism. But anyway. Um, yesterday was the 25th anniversary of Souls of Mischiefs. Uh... 93 till infinity and the release of krs one's debut solo album return of the boom bap also was the re- uh, release date of um 25th anniversary of the release date of uh spice one's 1870 wrote now the thing that's significant about all these is that all these albums were released on jive rca on the same date and they were all rap albums and jive rca prided itself on being a rap label at the time which is hilarious because just five years later it would switch to teen pop so they'd be releasing shit like britney spears the backstreet boys in sync and they would pretty much push out everybody who was a legacy act when the in the old jive zomba days kofi tuda doing the um grooming you know zombart <laughs> doing the graphic design i'm that old always read the line of notes always read the album credits i'm sure you know that if you've been listening to this podcast but souls of mischief classic album uh krs one's return to boom bap classic album neither of them went gold or platinum but based on the response to souls of mischief's album and how many people knew the lyrics and how many places I went and heard the songs. And when I went to school and other schools and visited places, people were dressing like souls of mischief. Dudes were getting their lineups and stuff like that all of a sudden. Um, people started getting super fresh after they came out. Which is funny because when Wu-Tang Clan came out, cast out acting like the Wu. It was funny because years earlier, I remember white kids. When I actually went to a school that had white kids. Um, when I went to... Uh, Boston Latin, which is probably like one of the three schools in Boston that actually had white kids. Yes, exactly. The the Boston you know from television and film is not the Boston I lived and uh, lived and grew up in. Uh, all the white kids uh, looked like Everlast <laughs> or Danny Boy. So it was funny how much kids were influenced by uh, who the pop, hot pop artists or rappers were. And yes. It was just interesting to see how much things changed uh, around this time because it was hilarious to see how much these rap albums affected people and how we responded to them. And these albums didn't even go gold. I was explaining to somebody, I was like, uh, Eric Sermon's No Pressure didn't go gold. And they were like, wait, wait, what? It's like, yeah, these albums didn't go gold. But it was everywhere. Uh, hitting switches. You couldn't, you couldn't turn on the TV or, or, or turn on the radio without hearing these songs. Or um, Stay Real, which was the official first single. Even though, because uh, what happened was um, Hitting Switches was like the single off of, um, uh, what was the name of that? Um, Who's the Man? The Who's the Man soundtrack. So the first single from like the album album was Stay Real. It was the black and white video where he's recording in the studio in Atlanta underneath the rim shop. I think it was a peace tree rim shop. And like Red Man comes down the stairs. Peace to Red Man, the rap funkadelic, the only MC that compares to Eric Kazam real. 
but like yeah but when i think about these albums that we bought and we dubbed and we played and we learned the lyrics to and you think that like we didn't care about their chart position we didn't care about where the single entered the chart. We didn't care about first week sales. We didn't care about monthly sales. We didn't care about any of this shit. All we knew was that it's a dope tape and there's a reason to own it. I'm going to play hostile loud as shit in my house, out my window, out my boy's car. I'm going to play the entirety of Tell Me Who Profits or I'm going to play Batting Practice. You know, like, when you think about, this is how we chill from 93 till. This is how we chill from 93 till. Like, how how much of an anthem that seemed to be. Or alcoholics. Um, how many times I heard bullshit. Or uh, make room or marry Jane during that same time stretch. It's just interesting to think about the impact of these albums that didn't really sell. It's nuts. And also, so um, talking about impact. So 20 years ago today was, again, the day that, you know, Love Movement, uh, Volume 2 Hard Knock Life, Equimini, Most Deaf and Taleb Quelia, Black Star, and Brand Nubians Foundation came out. I worked at the store that day um, I started the day working on the first floor because I actually got hired to work the video and magazines floor but I specialized in both so what happened was I had a lot of friends that worked on the second floor and they went to either Berkeley College of Music or the New England or Boston conservatories or they went to there was this recording this like recording and engineering school which I can't remember the name of it no longer exists uh and what happened was they would have studio time or they would have uh, projects or something do. And they always they couldn't always work on the weekend. So they would have to swap with somebody. And it got to be a point where they all knew they could swap with me because I worked the weekdays on the first floor. I worked Monday through Friday on the first floor. But I always ended up working the weekends on the second floor because I was always subbing in for somebody. So I worked seven days a week at Tower Records and we got paid every two weeks. And when I first started working, we got paid $5.50 an hour. But we got 35% discounts on vinyl, CDs, uh, VHS tapes, and DVDs. But no one bought DVDs because no one had a DVD player. As I explained in the article, in October 1998, only 5% of households in America owned a DVD player that changed over the holiday season and then we started renting DVDs because I suggested it that's another story neither here nor there but uh, they needed the fastest people on the register on the second floor and one of the girls that was working a register had to go home because young and after midnight and family worries and lives out in Massachusetts and not necessarily in the city. So she had somebody to come pick her up. And I, of course, who lived down the street and was fast on the register, was called upstairs and who they were used to having on the second floor because I rang all the time all weekend and every and the rap buyers and everyone in the key supervisors knew me. So and then, of course, people started calling the store after two, three months after me being there and asking for me by name 
to answer a question for them. I worked on the first floor. They were calling the second floor for me. They would transfer the thing down to me. I was not a manager. I was just an employee. Now, so I went up to the second floor and I was ringing stuff and I'm pulling up stuff and I'm ringing four or five CDs at a time and I'm pulling up boxes. I'm facing my bills. I'm bundling up uh, every hundred or whatever. I'm putting it in the safe, sticking it in the safe. I'm doing all this stuff. So like when they pull my drawer later, then we go up and do then they put another draw in because here's a trick. If you've ever worked anywhere in retail where you've worked a shift, you work your shift, they pull the shift, they pull your drawer. Sometimes you count it out. They, we had a count out room at Tower Records so, and we would play music and talk shit. You would count it out and then they would tabulate what it is, see how much your drawer was off and then you would go or you would go to lunch or you would go to lunch beforehand. Then you would count in your drawer. All right, so you have the necessary thing. You have your change and everything. All right, now go down and then you pull your drawer and you count it. Or sometimes they would just pull your drawer or whatever. You'd go, you leave, and then they'd count your drawer for you. So if you want to get the, the counts in early, what you do is pull drawers every 30 minutes, especially if you're doing a midnight sale or something like that. Every 30 minutes, so you're counting out a drawer by the time another drawer is going. So you have that input already, bam. Then you go downstairs, pull another drawer, count it again. So by the time the sales over that last drawer won't take a lot of time to count and tabulate you have to be you know you have to think so i think we went about 45 minutes just hard 45 minutes of sales and then finally it it thinged down and then what happened is they pulled the drawer and then they had another drawer for the uh the employees so the employees came in and they bought and that line was long and it was great working that night because I got to see parents with their kids. I got to see groups of friends. I got to see people, you know, who probably bought CDs, tapes, long boxes back in 1990. Uh, bought the first Tribe album, came to buy the last Tribe album. Some cats bought Just Tribe and um, Brand Nubian. Some cats bought all five. Some cats only bought like things that are kind of underground. Um, so they would buy like a tri uh, a tribe called Quest and uh, brand new bin, and then they'd buy um, most deaf and Talib Kweli are black star. It was interesting, like the cross sections of people who came out to buy what and who bought what. Some people would buy two that day. They come back, buy two the next week, and then they buy the last one the next week. So it's nuts. And I told, I said on um, Instagram, I wrote that it's been 20 years since this happened. I had access to billboard charts. I had access to numbers right there in the store. I never looked at what the sales were or who ended up wearing the billboard charts in the 20 years that passed. Because I wanted to remember that day for what it was. I wanted to remember that day for rap fans and music fans coming out to purchase albums that they genuinely wanted to, to support artists they loved. And a lot of cats came out for a Tribe Called Quest final album. You know, like it was a big deal. A Tribe Called Quest meant so much and still does to a lot of us. And like without Tribe, we don't get... Pharrell Williams and Chad Hugo, you know, without a tribe called Quest and the and the um 
and like the native tongues, we don't get surrounded by idiots, SBI. Surrounded by idiots is the Neptunes and Timberland in the same group. You can find their demos on YouTube, SBI, um, Surrounded by Idiots. It'll blow your fucking mind. Um, when you hear, and also Tyler the Creator got his name from Chad's old rap name. Yeah, he's that much of a fan. Um, so you think about all the people that they influenced going down. Like without native tongues, we don't get a Neptunes. Without Neptunes, we don't get a um a, a fucking Wolfgang. You know what I'm saying? Like that's insane to think, right? How the influence goes. But yeah, man, it's real. Like, Cats really came out to purchase these albums. And I explained that it happened at a time before the P2P sites emerged because communications technology got so fast that they were able to have things like Napster and E2, ED2K, and then like later all the other peer-to-peer sites that people used at colleges and universities. And also, I've explained this before, I believe. Boston was ground zero for the peer-to-peer era. I remember firsthand uh, noticing that we were selling more CDRs and CDRWs than CDs. Now, here's what's crazy. At the time, pop is huge. The Spice Girls are big. TLC's big. Um, Backstreet Boys are big. Christina Aguilera, Britney Spears. You know, 98 Degrees. All these cats are huge. Like the biggest acts you can imagine. This is the time when like the Hard Knock Life Tour was selling out full arenas. When rap returned to the big arenas. So everybody's making money hand over fist in the, in the music industry. Not just the rap industry. Although rap had become the top selling. And I hate how they say that it happened now. No, the shit happened between 1997 and 1998. Rap became the top selling industry. It usurped. It jumped over country in 97 and 98. I know I saw it. I lived it. I read the fucking charts. I saw the sales. I saw the, I saw everything. All right. Don't give me that bullshit. And it's easy to pass that off on young motherfuckers who were not around or in their 20s during this era 20 years ago. I'm 43. I know I lived it. Now, also, when I said that, you know, it's been 20 years and I never checked the charts on any of this shit. I decided that I should. So I check the charts of October 17th, 1998. Number one on the black albums charts, or as they call it here, the R&B hip hop albums. I believe it was called the R&B hip hop albums by 1998. Um, number one, Jay-Z's Volume 2 Hard Knock Life. Number two, Aquimini by Outkast. Number three, A Tribe Called Quest, The Love Movement. Number four is Lauren Hill, The Miseducation of Lauren Hill, which was number one the last week. But because of all these albums coming out, 
Last week, it got dropped down to four. Let's keep going. Number 12, entering the charts. Foundation by Brand Nubian. And number 13, Most Def and Quelly are Black Star, Black Star. That is the first time I've ever checked to see where they entered the charts. Right now, doing this podcast, 20 years after me ringing people up. Never checked, never cared. And I need to like really get this through people's heads. We didn't give a fuck. And it's not that we were ignorant of charts or the billboard or sales or the importance of them. We didn't care. All that mattered was because here's the thing. We kind of trusted the radio or DJs or whoever was in charge of determining what the hot shit was to find what the hot shit was. I think a big part of what blogging was, I matter of fact, I think it was, that we no longer trusted whoever was in charge or whoever was put in these positions to find the hot shit or the consensus hot shit. It's not the same now as it was then. There was no fucking conspiracy to make uh, Rob Bass and DJ Easy Rocks It Takes Two a hot song. It was a hot song. Nobody was like, hey, why do they keep playing this? They were just fucking dancing. There was nobody like, wait a minute. Who, 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 who's, who, who, who's greasing the palms of the DJs to get Johnny Kemp's Just Got Paid fucking playing on the radio and at all these parties? Yo, man, this fucking Groove Me song by Guy, man, this shit ain't as hot as everybody's saying it is. Know what I'm saying? Like, why they keep playing this shit? This shit is trash, but they keep trying to make it a hit. No one ever said that. Never. But when we come up to now, everybody's asking questions about payola. And here's the thing. This isn't fucking really new. Working records at radio has always been a thing. I have so many documentaries that talk specifically about people uh, working records and trying to get stuff going and and paying for trips and stuff like that and marketing and shit like that. Uh, if you're listening to this, I just walked into my room because I have documentaries. So specific documentaries to talk about this shit. Why don't I just put this in another room? Um, I need that record. The Death of Possible Survival of the Independent Record Store discusses this. Uh, Last Shop Standing, The Rise, Fall, and Rebirth of the Independent Record Shop. That's another one. Uh, Brick and Mortar Love, Indie Record Stores Are Not Just a Place to Buy a CD. These are three documentaries that I have on DVD that discuss this phenomenon or have numbers on these phenomenons. Right there on the screen. If you've never heard of these documentaries, I'm not surprised. Again, I'm somebody who does thorough research on these things because, again, I worked in record stores and I pretty much lived in them uh, most of my life. I'm walking down my own hall now. So I'm one of the people that when people talk records and stuff like that, well, there's a lot of us. But I, I guess I'm one of the people that when people talk records and stuff and like things of that nature... I like am one of the people that they come to to like discuss certain things like when did there stop being acapellas? When did remixes change? 
this answer was actually given uh, to me by uh, Just Blaze. And Just Blaze actually did an interview when he explained it in, a, in YouTube, on YouTube. And he actually sent me the link to YouTube to actually answer that question because I was answering it on um, Twitter years ago. And he was like, I had something to say about that. I'm like, bam, I'm like, thanks, Just, shit. And he explained that what happened was it was an issue with BDS machines. If you do a remix with a different beat, it tracks as a different song. So what happened was they started doing um, pro-tooled remixes where it's the same beat, different verses, but the BDS machine tracks all the plays, the new plays, as the same song, so it gets more uh, traction and progression on the charts as the, as the song. So it's easier for them to track uh, sales or increase or increase of of spins. Whereas it was a if it was a new beat, it'd be a different song as, as opposed to what they want it to be the same song. And so the the business pretty much took over the culture. Whereas remixes, different verses, new people, new beat. Remix. There's an entire generation that doesn't have that, doesn't fathom that. Or also, there's an entire generation that doesn't fathom rap sounding like it used to now. One of the things I wasn't a big fan of, it was like this trend. They would have young people review old rap, classic rap albums. I'm not a fan of this simply because what's the point? It would be like having somebody who doesn't listen to mainstream rap now review an album they don't want to hear. So when you have somebody who's 20 listening to like De La Soul's Three Feet High and Rising, it's almost like um, having an anime fan <laughs> nowadays watch like fucking gigantor in black and white you know what's the point you know have him watch old episodes of um astro boy why it looks super primitive also it's it's also like the same response that i get when um my brothers and i used to show our niece and nephew the atari and uh, ColecoVision and in television and M Network games we used to play at our friends' houses growing up, and also uh, showing them YouTube videos of uh, the the uh, Commodore 64 games we used to play. The cartridges, the games we loaded on our tape drive, the games we had on disc. This their faces. It's funny because their reaction to our rap albums from the 80s and 90s. It kind of should be their reaction to rap from the 70s, from 79 up to like 82, 83, but it isn't. They see it all as primitive, whereas I have delineations. I have like tears in my head. So for me, there's the old, old days of like Pong, Atari 2600 and television M Network, ColecoVision. Then you move up to like the 8-bit era of Nintendo uh, Sega Master System then you move up to the 16-bit era of Genesis 
TurboGrafx-16, Super Nintendo. There were other machines, right? But did they fucking matter? Then you go up, you know, and then it's like the Tears, the Jaguar, you know, the Neo Geo, the uh, Nintendo 64, why? The fucking um, Turbo Duo, which slept on machine, the Sega Saturn, the PlayStation, you know, like to us, that's how I see rap, that progression, golden eras, uh, transition periods. But to them, they just see it all as the fucking stone wheel. Because, again, they don't have any type of uh, frame of reference. It's not what they're used to. It's not what they heard growing up. So when Lil Wayne's uh, The Carter Five comes out, it's exciting for these cats because all they've known is Lil Wayne for more than 20 years. He's their guy. Jay-Z's always been their guy, you know? He's always been hot. Whereas I'm 43, Jay-Z was the guy in the Hawaii Sophie, Hawaiian Sophie video. Jay-Z was the guy who was sitting at the bar next to Positive K in the Taste of Chocolate video. Jay-Z's the guy that my boys, uh, Lyrical and Fee, used to go and hunt down um, Ski to produce for him. And they'd have to vouch for Jay to get him in the club. Because they had a record called Butter Messenger that was hot. And they didn't recognize who Jay was. I'm telling, like, this is real. Me saying these things is not me fucking deriding Jay. Or that, like, they used to have to put together uh, baskets to send the Funkmaster Flex to play their singles. This isn't fucking deriding Jay. This is what happened. This is what happened for everybody. Everybody wasn't fucking hot. To start. You know what I'm saying? To y'all, DMX has always been hot. He used to be DMX the Great. You know? He was putting out fucking independent singles before he got signed by Columbia. Rough House. Before he spent years grinding on the underground. On fucking Time to Build. With Jay-Z and Ja Rule from Cash Money Click. Before Def Jam, they all ended up on Def Jam with Irv, DJ Irv, not just Irv Gotti. This is the difference between knowing the history versus thinking that somebody's deriding somebody is shitting on them by pointing it out. I grew up and I lived through all this. Okay? I've seen it all. There are people right now that I know who are working in Hollywood and doing all these great things that I used to read writing at the source, making okay money. You know what I'm saying? There are people right now that are artists that are big that I knew from back in the days when people used to come to me working at Tower Records and bring me their tapes. I'm like, yo, you think this is hot? The reason why so many people know who I am is because I've been around. I'm consistent. I'm a constant. There's death, taxes, and dart atoms. That's why people will still hit me up to write articles like the ones that just ran. And that's why I still have articles that will that are about to be run. I've quit journalism between three and five times over the last five years. And I never begged anybody to come back, but they begged for me to come back. So there were a lot of journalists that were talking about how come Dart Adams doesn't quit. 
The question you need to be asking is how come you haven't done enough that nobody's needed my fucking services anymore? They saw you were available and they came from me. I just need to explain to you what I do isn't the average ordinary bullshit. This is God tier shit. This is shit that y'all ain't going to do. This is work y'all not going to do. You don't know how to do. You're not willing to do. While y'all sleep, I write and research. It's like nine coming up on 945 now. Do you think I slept last night? No. I researched something else I'm going to write and get paid for. And you're going to wonder how in the fuck did I write that article that way? Because I'm better than you. That's just what it is.